excuse me, allergy stuff messing with my throat this morning, but uh, we had a number of people. We did a thing this week that we called day camp all week long, every day this week. And it was for children who were sixth grade to pre-K. And we had somewhere around 30 volunteers every day who were involved in everything from feeding kids to spending time with them to planning games, telling Bible stories, doing crafts, cleaning up after them, organizing and taking care of registration and other things. And I want to just take a moment just to celebrate all of our people who volunteered in any way this week. So if you helped with day camp this week, if you were a participant or you were involved with that in any way, would you just stand for just a second for us to see around the room? I want you to see some of our people who were involved in this. Thank you to all of you. We were able to minister to around 40 children each day. And um, again, many of these kids were kids that we don't have historic ties to. Uh, you know, there are certain kids that year in and year out, we, of course, families we reach, families we know, some kids that maybe just come to our Bible school each year and things of that nature. But there were a number, a number of kids through day camp that we haven't had any connection with in the past. And it was really awesome to meet a whole new batch of kids, connect with a whole new group of families and make ties with them. And so we're excited to be able to do that. And I just want to say it could not have happened without the help of our volunteers. And more than that, I want to just, uh, I, I want to really single out Colby Sorensen, our minister to children and families, who did an awesome job in pulling things together. It really, the whole idea really was birthed out of his heart and his, his mind to try to do something to meet needs that he saw might be coming if there was a teacher walkout. And so he kind of sprang into action, came to me, talked about, hey, could we do something? What would it look like if we did this? And, and he was the driving force behind a lot of that. And so good job, Colby. Good job, uh, volunteers who did that. All right. Now we'll take a moment to dismiss our kids to kids crew, all right? All of our children and our workers and leaders who are going to be a part of that. If they want to make their way upstairs while they're doing that, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 11 in your Bibles. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark. And you may say, oh, wait a second. Last week we were in Mark chapter 15. How did we go all the way back to Mark chapter 11? Well, uh, we talked about this, but we... we Fast forward a little bit in the timeline last week because it was Easter Sunday. We wanted to cover the, uh, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection to kind of tie together the timeline between two weeks ago, which would be three weeks ago now, but two weeks prior to last Sunday, three weeks ago, when we looked at the story of where Jesus predicts his death. Three different times in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, he predicts his death his resurrection. Then we saw in Mark chapter 11, the triumphal entry. We saw where Jesus arrives into the city to deal with things and ultimately to accomplish his purpose of dying on the cross for his people. We saw that on Palm Sunday two weeks ago. And then last Sunday we looked in Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 16, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection where Jesus paid the ultimate price, where he accomplished his purpose for us. Well, now we're going back to re-engage with these events that have happened. And so it, as, the, as the timeline goes now, we're stepping back into the week where Jesus has arrived. He's, uh, he's in, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, he has done what we saw as the triumphal entry. And in fact, even in chapter 11, where we're going to pick up today, is where he goes into the temple, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. 
And now these events that take place, the ones that we're going to study today and subsequently over the next few weeks, all of these events occur in what we commonly refer to as the Passion Week. That's the week between the triumphal entry and the, the crucifixion, okay? And so this week, this, this week is, is packed full of significant events in all of the Gospels, and particularly as we're going to see in Mark's Gospel. So we're going to pick up this morning in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 11, where Jesus enters into the temple, and then we're going to consider a couple of significant events that happen in Mark chapter 11 as we finish out Mark chapter 11. Now, before we jump into that, one other note, okay? This is somewhat of a side note, but, uh, but normally when we read the Scriptures, we have it up on the screen for you to follow along. We were having an issue this morning. The computer was not connecting with our network and things weren't working just right. So the notes are there. You'll be able to follow along and take notes. But the scriptures themselves, we couldn't get the background to pull into the program off of our network this morning. And so it would be black text on top of a black background if we were to show it to you. Right. So we're just going to read it and you'll just have to do the old-fashioned thing and follow along on your iPhone, right? If that took you a minute, it's okay. I'll pause and wait for you to catch up to us, all right? But we're going, to read, uh, we're going to read from Mark chapter 11 this morning. Let's begin in verse 11. We see that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it already was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus enters into the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, there it is. We got the background. It's similar. It says Ash Wednesday on it, so just ignore that, all right? It's similar. It's close enough, right? Uh, and, and so you can, you can read it on the screens too. So uh, we see that Jesus enters into the city, and what we see happening here is, in many ways, the culmination of these prophetic events earlier of this day. Jesus riding into the city, He's coming from the Mount of Olives. He's riding on the back of a donkey. We, we looked at the significance of those things a few Sundays ago when we studied that passage. But then what we see is he comes into the city and at the exact moment when you would have expected that this would be it, this would be it, the climax, the apex, the, the, this, this would be the, the main event. And Jesus just looks around and sees that it's late. And he goes home. He goes back to Bethany, right? It's very anticlimactic in a number of ways. But there's even in that, there's some significance. Because what Jesus is doing is he's proving to us in this event and the events that transpire over the next few days. That the focus is not about the temple. It's not about the location. It's not about the place. But it's about something else entirely. And we'll see that with what happens next. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now let's talk about the significance of this for a moment. Because you may see this and you may think, now this is really weird, that Jesus would be so impetuous, that he would be so quick-tempered, that he would see a fig tree in leaf and just because there was no fruit, that he would curse the fig tree. Why would he do that? Was he really that hot-headed? And the answer is, of course, no. What Jesus is doing here is he is giving us what we might call a living parable. His, his 
actions here are intended to be symbolic of something much more significant. But in order to understand that, we need to understand a few things about fig leaves and fig trees and and the fruit and, and, and all of those things. First of all, this, of course, is happening at the time of Passover, right? Now, Passover would have happened around this same time each year. In fact, uh, Passover shifts, so it's not, it's not exactly on one date because it's based on a lunar calendar, not on our system, a solar calendar, the way that we have where, you know, it's how many times we make the 365 and a quarter days and we make a trip around the sun. It, this is based on a lunar calendar, which some people say, well, why is Easter on a different day every year? It has to do with the fact that it's based on, it's based on that lunar calendar. And so the date moves a little bit each year. And so Passover would have been in the spring. Now, fig trees don't come into full bloom typically until later months. Typically, it's in the late spring, early summer when a fig tree is in full bloom, much less the fact that it would be producing fruit at this point. And so the fact that Jesus saw a fig tree, that it describes it here, a fig tree in leaf, verse 13, that's the way that it's described, is significant for a number of reasons. First of all, this would have been really uncommon. Typically, fig trees would not have been in leaf. They would not have been budded out with and, and have put on leaves this early in the growing season. Much less would you expect for one to produce fruit. So the fact that Jesus is, is focusing on a tree that is in leaf, out of season, is significant, Right? Because this tree can't be producing fruit. It's not in season, but that is intended to be a show of something much more significant as we'll see in just a moment. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And and let me say this. The way Mark pairs these two events together, the condemning of the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree, and the condemning of the temple as Jesus purifies the temple in a moment for us. Don't miss the significance of these two events being tied together in Mark's gospel. Because we are intended to understand and interpret these events in light of one another. See if you catch that as we read this. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, so we have these two events cursing of the fig tree, and now Jesus has purified the temple. He's condemned the temple because he's saying in turning over the money changers' tables and driving them out and and calling down this condemnation on this supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing is he's condemning the distortion of what he had established. Do you see that? The temple was supposed to be the place where people worship God. Now, it was important that they be able to sacrifice because the the Old Testament law required that they would offer sacrifices in the temple. But the, the way the system had been twisted and even distorted over time, there was there was an entire 
economic hierarchy here that's at play. There was an entire economic system that's designed to line the pockets of those who are in religious positions of power at the expense of the people. And so they had taken what God had given them and they had turned it in a way that they could profit from it rather than using it as a means of honoring God. They had distorted, or we might even use the word perverted, God's original law and his truth by twisting it. And that is what Jesus is condemning. But in a way, he's using the condemnation of what he sees happening in the temple courts to point to something actually even larger than that. And he shows us that in the next verse, verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now that's significant, and, and I, I want to zero in on that for a moment and, and consider that. Because if we, if we read this out of context, if we take this out of its, out of its place here, it would be easy for us to, to say, well... Jesus just told us that we can pray and ask for anything we want, and he's going to give it to us. And in fact, there have been many who have done that. They have, they have uh, taken these verses, completely divorced them of their context. They have what we would call proof texting, meaning that they've just used it, or another word that we would use is eisegesis, meaning that they have interpreted it in isolation without its proper context. And so they've just lifted these verses out and said, well, look, the Bible, Jesus said, ask anything you want. And, and we, see, we see evidence of this all over the place, right? In prosperity gospel and other false teaching, people say, well, you just got to believe, you just got to claim that word, claim that promise, claim what you've prayed about, right? You just pray it in Jesus' name and you just name it and you claim it and it's going to be yours. And yet, that's not actually at all what Jesus is teaching here. So it's important that we consider these things in their proper context so that we don't distort the very heart of what it is that Jesus is teaching us here. So let's go back and let's step through some of this. Let's consider it in its right context and let's understand what all of this is pointing us to. Because what I think we have here is a, really, in, in many ways, a beautiful picture of what the heart of true worship, true faith is supposed to be about. So the first point that you have in your notes is this. You see that by condemning the fig tree, by condemning the fig tree, Jesus changes the focus of worship. By condemning the fig tree, he changes the focus of worship. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. What Jesus is doing, we see interpreted by Jesus himself in verses 20 through 25. We see that what Jesus is doing when he condemns the fig tree is he's giving us a living parable. This is not a hot-headed, quick-tempered Jesus who's just mad because the, he saw a tree and he thought he was going to be able to pick some figs and you know, get a first century fig newton and, and, and it didn't happen, right? That's not what this is. Instead, 
Jesus is using this as a living picture, as, a, as, a, as an object lesson to teach his disciples. The point is that the fig tree, the fig tree is not producing fruit the way that, that you would have expected, perhaps, if you saw it in bloom. The, the, the fig tree is not producing the fruit in season. It's actually out of season for it to be in leaf. All of this is showing, Jesus is saying, look, my people are not producing the fruit in the right season. They're not doing what it is that I've created them to do. A fig tree is created to produce figs. It's its intended purpose. And it happens according to a very predictable life cycle, Right? That's tied to the seasons, as are, as are so many agricultural types of examples that we could use. Jesus happens to use this one. And by seeing the fig tree in leaf, but it's not produced fruit, by pointing to the fact that it's not accomplishing its purpose, it's not functioning in the right season, by pointing to the fact that things were out of whack, they were out of sorts, it was not what it should have been, Jesus is showing us that Worship had become the same thing. Enter in now, if you will, the juxtapose that with the story of the temple. Because what do we find in the temple? We find that here is, here is an entire system that was established by God to create a people who are dependent upon him, who are tied to him in a covenant relationship who are offering sacrifices according to the law that he established. And the intended purpose of those sacrifices even is to show them that their sins need atoning for, that there was a price to pay for their guilt, for their sin. And yet all of this was lost along the way because it, it just became about, it became about uh, being in the right place at the right time and going through the motions. It became about, you, do I have enough money for a pigeon or can I buy a dove? Or do we have enough to buy a lamb? And it, and it became about this, you know, it, it was about status really is what it was. The more money you had, the better sacrifice that you could pay, the more that you could sort of flaunt your status in, in the way that you would, and, and they would overprice these animals in the first place. The, all of it, the whole system had become corrupt. And Jesus sees all of this. And he's moved at how, just how twisted all of this had become. People missed it entirely. The whole thing was designed to show them that they needed a Savior. And yet now that the Savior has come and is living among them and is dwelling with them in the flesh, they miss it because they couldn't see the proverbial forest for the trees. Does that make sense? Consider for a moment what Jesus must have thought just a, a few days prior as he stood atop the Mount of Olives and he looked down into the city of Jerusalem. See, the Mount of Olives sat several hundred feet above the Temple Mount, just a few hundred, well, maybe a few thousand feet to the east across the Kidron Valley. It was the perfect vantage point to look down into the temple and see what's happening in the temple court. And from his vantage point, as Jesus the top of Mount of Olives looks down into the top of Mount Zion where the Temple Mount was. He saw these people going about their business, buying and selling these sacrifices, people profiting 
off of the backs of hardworking others who were just trying to be faithful and yet they didn't even understand the full significance of what they were doing. And here is the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb. And on the day that he rides into the temple, no one even seems to notice. Can you imagine how that must have moved the heart of God? Everything I've done, everything I've created, all that I am, everything that I've come to do, and yet my people don't even see it. These very people that I have loved for generations, this stiff-necked group that I have loved in spite of the many ways that they've turned against me again and again. And now that I'm here, they don't even recognize it. See, their focus was completely on the wrong things, right? And what Jesus is attempting to do here in cursing the fig tree, he's using this as an object lesson to his disciples and anyone else that will pay attention to say, look, what things have become is not what they're going to be because I'm about to make a better way. I'm about to create a a different system. As he had predicted already, it's as if he's saying, I'm about to tear all of this down so that on the third day, I can rebuild it again. Only this time when I rebuild it, it's going to be something perfect. Something that, that only has to be done once and for all. A perfect sacrifice, an enduring sacrifice by my blood. The new temple will not be a temple built by human hands. It will be a temple of my body, which is broken for you. My sacrifice, a covenant by faith between you and me, if by faith you will believe in me. That's the heart of what Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand here. And so in order for them to see this, he has to change their focus. That's what he's talking about here in verses 20 through 25. When he talks about prayer, let's understand that in this this light. Let's look at it again. Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken taken up and thrown in the sea, does not doubt, in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What Jesus is saying to Peter here is he's saying, Peter, of course. Of course the fig tree is cursed because I cursed it. Peter, of course the fig tree is withered because Peter, whatever I do, I do all things well. Peter, whatever I do, I do it perfectly. And what I'm about to do for you, I'm going to do that perfectly as well. And Peter, if you will just have faith in me, not all of this system, not all of this distortion, not everything that you see around you, Peter, if you will fix your eyes on me and believe in me, then I will never disappoint. I will never let you down. You will never come up empty-handed when you trust in me, Peter. You will always receive what you pray for and what you ask when you ask in my name. Peter, I will always do what I have promised you that I will do. Now, if you come back tonight, okay, this is just a, uh, a commercial of sorts. If you come back tonight, I'm actually going to look a little bit closer at this idea of whatever you ask for in my name I will give it to you. And I'm going to, reference, I'm going to cross-reference this particular passage with several other passages in the New Testament that all point to this idea of whatever we pray for and whatever we ask in Jesus' name, that he will do it. What does that mean to ask for something in the name of Jesus? What does that mean when we, when we pray and we ask 
of things in his name. We're going to dig deeper on that specifically tonight so that we understand, again, more fully the context of this. And, and so I want you to come back tonight for that and, and hear more about that at six o'clock. But for now, I want to say this about it. Jesus is not, this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not, this is not, let me say it this way. This is not about claiming power over God in prayer. That if we just say what we want, God's going to do it as if he's any man's debtor. Instead, this is not about claiming power over God in prayer, but this is about holding to the power of God in prayer. Do you see? This isn't saying, God, I want this. You have to do it because I said Jesus' name. It's about understanding that if we will pray for the God's will to be accomplished, if we will seek and pursue and work earnestly toward the will of God, that we will never be disappointed. And so it's not about claiming power over God, but rather living in his power. And that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. The idea of a mountain being moved in ancient culture is symbolic of of what we might consider to be almost like immeasurable power, right? I mean, we might think of someone who has immeasurable power like along the lines of like nuclear power, right? It's like the power to to destroy, to flatten cities. It's like this mind-blowing, incredible power. Well, in their day, they would think along the lines of a mountain being moved. If you could move a mountain, then that's, that's, that's incomprehensible power, right? It's incomparable power. And what Jesus is saying is, look, through me, not through all of this, not through the systems of the sacrifices and the distortions and not through that, but through me, you have access to incomparable power. But you've got to stay connected to me. You've got to stay, you've got to keep your focus on me. So he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. Jesus is saying, trust me, Peter. Now, here's what's interesting. He's saying, trust me, to the very one that he knew would doubt him, right? Who, who the very one, now not doubting Thomas, I, I understand that's a different person, but I mean, Peter got scared the night of Jesus' arrest and he began denying Jesus, right? Peter proved, in, in this moment, he proved his lack of faith in, in, in these days to come and the way the story unfolded because when things got difficult, he turned tail and ran, right? And yet Jesus is saying to this same Peter, who he knows in a matter of days is going to deny him. The same Peter, coincidentally, who he's already told, upon your confession of faith, I'll build my church. The same Peter who later Jesus lovingly restores in John chapter 20 and says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. The same Peter who would become, in many ways, who would become the bold leader of the early church. Peter says, Jesus says to him, Peter, if you will just keep your focus on me, then you can do anything in my name. That's the power of God. That's the focus that Jesus wants his disciples to have. Do you see that? So by condemning the fig tree, He's giving them a living parable, an object lesson that's intended to show them that there's a new focus to their worship. It's not about the temple. It's not about the sacrifices. It's not about the distortion and the corruption and those things that it had become, but rather it's about something in actuality much greater. Secondly, we see this. 
that by condemning the temple, Jesus changes the locus of worship. Now, you heard me right. I didn't say locust. It's not a little cricket, right? It's not a, the locus, the location, the place of worship. No longer is it about what takes place in a temple because as Jesus has already told them, in a couple of days, I'm going to tear this temple down and then I'm going to build it up again. Now, he didn't mean that literally, right? He didn't mean that literally or else he would have failed because... At the end of this week, the temple is still standing. And in fact, this is around A.D. 30. It wasn't until A.D. 70 when the Romans invaded Jerusalem that they leveled the temple. The Romans were the ones who tore down the physical structure itself. But at that time, for many years, what Jesus predicted had already been accomplished. Because what he, what he meant was that I'm going to create a temple, not a temple of human hands, but one that's lasting one that will endure, one that will never fade. What he's saying is, it's not about the place where we worship, but it's about the person that we worship. Let's look at what happens here. They came to Jerusalem, we saw this. They've been in the temple, all of these things. But then the religious leaders in verse 27, they, they zero in on what's happening. Jesus has their attention now, and they say this to him. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Now, isn't that ironic? Isn't that question really ironic? That to the very God of creation, the very one who spoke all things into existence, that these men whom he created would say, who gave you the authority to do this? And yet, Jesus, instead of squashing them like bugs, right? Instead of leveling them with lightning bolts from the sky or something like we would really like to see happen, right? Jesus just says simply to them, let me ask you a question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all heard that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now here's, here's what I really think is happening here. Between the events of the temple and, and, and turning over the money tables, driving out those who were selling and profiteering off of the people and these events. Here's what I really think is happening. Jesus knows that he's going to pick a fight. Have you ever seen the movie Braveheart? There's that there's the the classic scene in the movie Braveheart where William Wallace stands in front of all of his men and he and he cries out to them, you know, uh, men of Scotland, and, he, and he, he delivers the line about they may have our land, but they can never take our freedom, right? And it's just this great scene. And then he's, he's going to ride out to meet the English, the, the English uh, leaders, the English generals, I guess we would, they weren't truly generals in those days, but the leaders of the English army. And, and his, own, his own lieutenants ask him, where are you going? And what does he say? He says, I'm going to pick a fight. 
he knew what he was about to do, right? And, and so he rode out to the battle, and of course he, he, uh, he challenges their authority and, and all of these things. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Did Jesus really change anything about the money system? The profiteering and the selling of, the selling of these sacrifices and things, maybe for, the, maybe for a day. Maybe that day, maybe at least for a while that day, he ran out the money changers. But you know what happened the next day at the opening of the temple, at the break of dawn, they were there again, selling their sacrifices, making their profits, the same thing, same routine, another day, another dollar, right? What Jesus is doing is so much more significant than just putting a literal end to that. By condemning it, he's showing us that everything is about to change. This corrupt system is imploding on itself because it was never designed to work like this. And in fact, even the way it was designed, it was never going to work anyway as if it anyone could be saved by their works. I have come to be the spotless lamb he's demonstrating for them. So he says that the locus of worship, the the whole point of worship is going to change. It's no longer about a physical temple, but about Jesus as the living embodiment of the temple, the dwelling place of God with man. Jesus was God in the flesh. The very, the very heart of God who had come to be with his people, his presence with us. That's what the temple was supposed to be. That's what it was designed to be, at least representatively. And yet it had been distorted. And Jesus is about to make all things new and all things right with his sacrifice. And so these religious leaders say, by what authority do you do this? And the God of creation, rather than saying, by my own authority, says to them, you answer my question and I'll answer it, right? He plays games with them. He toys with them in a sense. But really what he's doing is he's, really what he's doing is he's stepping on their toes. He's just giving them further cause or in their own minds, further justification for what they're about to do. But what they don't understand and only Jesus knows is that none of these events would be happening without his authority. All of these things were taking place so that he could ultimately pay the price for their sin, for your sin, by dying on the cross. So he's changing the locus of worship, meaning it's no longer about a place, but it's about a person. It's no longer about a temple made of human hands. It's about Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who gave himself for us so that we might be forgiven and set free. And that's the heart behind what Jesus is doing here. See, so much of the time we might read this and we, and, and we say, well, Jesus wanted to purify the temple because they shouldn't have been selling things in the temple. Well, they shouldn't have. But there's, there's really something more significant that's happening. Jesus is tearing down what man had distorted so that he could set in its place something that man could never distort. And by faith, when we trust in him, we are given a faith that we are given a a salvation, a a, a redemption. We're giving a, a story, if you want to think of it that way, that 
no one can take from us, that no one can distort, no one can twist, no one can corrupt, because Jesus purchased with his blood the spotless lamb who was given for us. I wonder, has there ever been a day when you've trusted in him for your salvation? Has there ever been a time in your life when you have trusted in this perfect sacrifice who was given for you? The irony of all ironies here is that it's the God of the universe who has all of the authority that he needs to do whatever he would wish, right? That they say to him, well, who says you can do this? So much of the time, don't we live our lives thinking we're in charge, we're in control? Don't we defiantly puff our chests at God? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. God lovingly and patiently looks at us and says, answer me this. Where do you get the authority to do this? Where, who says you can do it? Who's, how do you know that you're in control? Who says that you're going to get to do all of those things that you think you'll do? Who says that life is going to play its way out the way that you think it will, Right? We walk through life with this illusion of our own control and our own autonomy and our own power. And yet, what we need to be reminded of is that there is a power far greater. And just as Jesus says to Peter, if we will focus on him, not on ourselves, not on a place, but on a person. If we will focus on Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on him. then the power of God is made available to us through his atoning work on the cross. And whatever we pray, he can do. Whatever we ask, he has the power to accomplish it. And when we are walking by faith in step with him, we will ask for the things that will bring him honor, and the things that will bring him glory, the things that will please the heart of God. All of that begins, though, by shifting our focus. It's no longer on us and what we want and what we can do. It's no longer on a place. It's no longer on a building. It's not about following a set of rules or just going through a set of motions. It's on a person whose name is Jesus, the very one who gave himself for us. And today, if you've never trusted in him by faith, and my challenge would be that during our time of response in a moment, that you would come forward. Our staff will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you. A prayer of faith that you could surrender your life to him, that you could truly make him the Lord of your life. Listen, the same God who has power to move mountains has power to forgive you of your sins. If by faith you will call on him, if you'll trust and believe. Or maybe you're here today and you recognize, much like the people of this first century who their focus had just shifted into things that it was. They had just, they had taken something good and they had made it about something else. Maybe you would say, you know, that's really what I've done. I mean, I've trusted in Jesus and I know I'm, I know I'm saved. I know I've believed in him for my salvation. But if I were to be honest, and I, I've become cynical and I'm worn out and I'm tired and I'm just, I look around and I'm judgmental of everyone else. And I just, and, and it just all to me, everything just seems messed up. Could it be that what God is trying to communicate to you today is that you've put your focus on the wrong things? And I 
if you will come back, if you'll put your focus back on him, if you'll align your life's purpose with his purpose, his will, then you'll begin to see that worship is not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about, it's, it's not about uh, a system. It's not about a, a, a temple. It's, it, it's, not even about, it's not even about us in any way. It's, it's about God's work being done through us. Are you ready to let him have first place in your life? Are you ready to let him be the focus of your worship? Would you pray with me? God, as we pray today, I...